pray together. Our Lord, we really are grateful for this morning that you've given us. We're grateful that you have given us your word, that we are able to know who you are through it, that you are able to teach us more about yourself. And and that is our desire, that we want to draw nearer to you this morning. Uh, Your word is truth. And so we don't want to turn to anything else besides your word to know who you are. And we really do want to be transformed by your truth. Uh, We don't want man's opinion. We don't want my opinion. We want your truth to be spoken this morning. And so would you do that? Would you teach us from your word this morning? Would you transform our lives through your word this morning? Would you help us so that we would, in fact, do what your word says this morning, that we would be obedient? So for all of that, we need help. And so we're coming to you. Would you respond to us? Hear our prayer, our Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now, I'm guessing uh, that most of us who are here are from Philadelphia, right? And if you are from Philadelphia, you know that one of the things that uh, Philadelphians are known for is sort of how quickly we can turn on people, right? <laughs> we just do. I don't know what it is, but we just quickly turn on people. Let's, let's take, for example, uh, Chip Kelly, right? When Chip Kelly was being announced that he was going to be coming to Philadelphia, the, the immediate reaction was that this guy was going to be the savior of our football team. Right? He was going to come in, he's going to give us not one, not two, but three or four or five Super Bowls. We were just ready to experience success because of Chip Kelly. But now, after the end of this recent season, uh, we feel like this guy is just a washed-up coach. Uh, he's overrated at best. Uh, there's no way that this guy is going to lead us to any Super Bowls. No chance. Right? Or uh, take Melvin, for example. Right? Melvin goes to our church. Melvin is probably one of the, the nicest guys you will ever meet in your life. Really, I, I really mean that. He's, he's probably one of the nicest guys you will ever meet. That is until I found out that he's from Dallas. And now I can't stand him. I can't. I can't stand that guy. But it's sort of just how we operate as Philadelphians, right? It's sort of ingrained into us. We, we live by this mindset, I love you until you wrong me, Right? And it affects sort of every single aspect of our lives, just how it is that we live. Let me give you a personal example. So about a month ago, uh, I went home one day after church, and I was coming home, and I walk into the house. And so I see the children, I greet the children, and I walk into the family room. And when I walk into the family room, there on the couch was a pile of laundry, okay? A pile of laundry that was not done or not folded the way that it was supposed to be, right? So the moment that I saw that pile of laundry... I got angry, right? I mean, I really got angry. I mean, but, you know, I'm a good guy, so I'm not yelling, I'm not screaming. I'm just sort of walking around angry, right? I'm sort of silently seething on the inside. And so the entire night, I'm just quiet. Now, if you know me, you know that I can talk, right? I'm a talker, but that entire night, I haven't said a single thing to Sharon because I'm just angry about what she has done because of all this unfolded laundry on the couch, right? I mean, I was so heated that later on that week, I would go to Soul Care. Soul Care is where we meet with men, men would meet with men, and women meet with women. So we, I went to Soul Care that week, and I was just venting, right, telling them how Sharon had wronged me by what she had done. I mean, sure, right, she is taking care of two kids and, and has a job and, and as, uh, goes grocery shopping and provides for our family by cleaning up and doing all sorts of stuff, but those clothes, right, Why didn't she fold those clothes? I don't get it. And I was angry. 
I mean, it's comical now, but I was dead serious then. Unfolded clothes made me feel differently about my wife. Uh, it made me turn on her. It really did. Uh, it affected the way that I saw her. But you see, I think this is the thing. I don't think it's just me. I don't even think it's just Philadelphians. I think this is sort of the, the mantra that the entire world sort of lives by. Let me give you an example. I want, to hear, I want you to hear a quote from Oprah, okay? This is what she says. She says, people who love you don't treat you badly. Love doesn't hurt, and if it does, something's wrong. Love is supposed to feel good. Now, everything in me wants to kind of shake Oprah and say, come on, you're ridiculous, right? You don't really believe that. That's not how love works. But you see, if I were to be honest, I think that's exactly how I see love at times. You see, I'll love as long as everything is perfect and as long as you perfectly love me. But the moment that things become difficult, all bets are off, right? That's sort of how we live. That's the mantra that we live by. Well, you see, we're sort of on our fourth week right now of studying through the book of Ruth. And, and you see, some people describe Ruth as being one of the most, the, the greatest love stories that has ever been told. And, and I think it is, but maybe not in the way that you and I really imagine. Because, you see, we live in this world of, of Disney, right? We live in the world of Disney. And so in our minds, a great love story is one that's filled with all sorts of optimism and, and great plots and, and amazing endings. But I think that's why they're called fairy tales, right? Because you and I know that life really doesn't work that way, right? I mean, think back to Oprah's quote for a second. People who love you don't treat you badly. Is that right? I mean, consider for one second just all the people that are in your life, right? All the people that mean anything to you, right, have some sort of relationship. I mean, is there one person that you can think of that hasn't hurt you in some way at some point in your life? Is there any, any relationship where it's just been absolutely easy for you to be able to love that person at all times? I mean, I don't care if you're talking about your sister or your BFF, or your, or your spouse, or even your dog, right? Any meaningful relationship is going to be hard, and it's going to be messy, and it's going to be guaranteed to be that way. So I think if you're only looking for a relationship where someone won't hurt you, or it doesn't cost you anything to love that person, I think maybe your best bet is to find Oprah and to become friends with her, right? Because I just don't know where else you're going to be able to find someone like that. But you see, for the rest of us, I think that we're in need of a, get, a better game plan, right? Some way for us to know what it looks like for us to love one another in this messy, imperfect world that we live in. And you see, that's why I'm grateful for this book of Ruth. Because you see, tucked into this book, right, is actually a single word, a single word that describes the very thing that we're looking for. It's sort of tucked away that you're not able to find it easily. It's actually a word that's described over 246 times in the Old Testament. It's used so many times in the Old Testament. In fact, a biblical scholar, a linguist, once said this about the word. It said, he said, it is one of the most important words in the vocabulary of the Old Testament, and that the entire history of God's love for Israel can be summarized into one word. Hear that for a second, right? One word could describe to us the way in which God loves his people. I mean, that's a serious word. 
And so what I think is that it wouldn't be an overstatement if I were to say that if we were able to spend some time understanding this word, unpacking this word, even trying to live by this word, that it could radically transform the relationships that we have with one another on this earth. And so here goes, okay? Are you ready? The word is found three times in the book of Ruth. Okay, so let's hear the first occurrence. This is what it says. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return, each of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Did you catch that? Did you hear the word? Okay, well, let's try it again. Okay, let's skip that one. We'll go to the second one, okay? Uh, this is chapter 2, verse 20. It says, And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Do you see it now? Do you, have a, do you have a clue what I'm talking about, what the word is? Okay, how about we we'll try it one more time. Okay, this is the last occurrence. This is chapter 3, verse 10. Okay, it says, And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Did you figure it out, what the word is that we're talking about here? It's the word kind, or kindly, or kindness. Now, be honest with me for a second, right? Is that a bit underwhelming, right? I imagine that you were probably expecting something much more grand to be up on that screen, right? Uh, something that would be much more profound, because hopefully what we're saying this morning is not that real love in a messy world would just mean that we have to be kind to one another, right? But that's not what we're concluding this morning, because even Blockbuster could have told us that, right? They've been telling us that for years. What have they been saying? Be kind. Rewind, right? <laughs> if you don't know that joke, maybe uh, you're too young. That's why. So, <clears throat> But obviously, the Bible must have something better to say than just that, right? Because I think what we're facing here is sort of a problem of just being lost in translation, you see, the word that's being used here in the Hebrew is actually the word hesed, right? And see, hesed is, is a, a Hebrew word that is so nuanced that we often face this problem of being able to translate it properly into English. And so translators, when they do translate into the various versions, they use all sorts of words to try to describe what hesed actually means. And so they'll say things like, uh, hesed means kindness, or that it means faithfulness, or that it means loyalty, or loving kindness, or love, or mercy, all sorts of words. And the thing is, hesed does mean each one of those words, but none of those words sort of individually explain to us fully what hesed means. And so no matter how much we try to translate that word back into the English, we sort of fail to fully communicate what is really being said. In fact, it's one of those words where I think it might be easier for us to be able to demonstrate what hesed actually looks like than to try to explain what hesed looks like using words. Does that make sense? The point is that we want to try to explain what it's actually looking like when it's lived out than trying to explain it using words. And so that's why I think that this book of Ruth is actually very helpful for us. You see, the majority of the time in the scriptures when the word hesed is used, it's used to describe to us the way that God loves us, right? The way that he responds to us, the way that he relates to us. In fact, 
he uses this word to actually describe himself at one point, right? This is Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. God says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You see that word right there, steadfast love? That word is actually hesed. And what he's saying is, listen, I'm full. I'm abounding in hesed. I'm abounding in steadfast love, and, and he uses, uses that word to describe himself. But you see, what's so fascinating about, about Ruth is that while hesed is typically used to describe God's love towards us, what we see in Ruth is that we see example after example of hesed being used to describe the way that people relate to one another, Right? We see in this story example after example of how people relate to one another with Hesed love. How people relate to one another with Hesed love even though they live in a messy and an imperfect world. And I think that if we were to take some time right now to kind of study these relationships, the ways in which this Hesed love is now being demonstrated and shown to one another, I think it really could transform the way that we live out our relationships in a messy and imperfect world as well. And so this morning, our hope is just basically to do two things, to be able to consider two ways that Hesed love is lived out from the book of Ruth, right? Because I really do think, I mean, there's probably a, a million ways that we can describe Hesed and what it looks like, but I think just even two ways this morning could radically transform the way that we relate to one another, to relate to the people that we do love in our lives. And so before we do that, let me just catch us up on where we are in this book. We've been saying over and over again that within the first five verses of this book, there's been all sorts of things that have happened, right? We see one famine, right? We see two marriages, and we see three funerals just in a matter of five verses in this book, right? This book is a story about a, name, uh, a woman named Naomi and her husband and her two sons who were living in a, in a place called Bethlehem, Right? And it turns out that Bethlehem has a famine. They're out of food. And so the people of Bethlehem are trying to figure out what it is that they're going to do. How are they going to respond to the fact that there's no longer food in their town? And so what does Naomi do? Naomi and her family decides this is what we're going to do. We're going to pick up our stuff, and we're going to move to a place called Moab. The only thing is that Moab is actually sort of enemy territory for Israelites, right? The Moabites and the Israelites don't get along with one another. And so this would be sort of an odd place for them to move to. It would be sort of an unwelcome place. But they decide they need to do something. They need to live. So they decide they're going to pick up their stuff and go. Well, what was meant to be sort of a, a short stay in Moab ends up being a 10-year-long stay. And, and during those 10 years, what we see is that uh, Naomi's little boys grow up, and they take Moabite women to become their uh, wives, right? Uh, Moabite women become their wives. And then in these five verses, what we see is that all of a sudden, all of the men in Naomi's life die, right? Her husband dies, her two sons die, and now Naomi's left with just her two daughter-in-laws, Ruth and Orpah, and now she needs to figure out what she's going to do. So she decides, listen, this is what I want to do. I'm going to move back home. I'm going to go back to Bethlehem, right? Because I need to figure out what I want to do. I need to go back home, and maybe there I'll be able to find some sort of future for myself. And so what we see is Naomi using the next 10 verses of, 
uh, of chapter 1 to try to convince Ruth and, and Orpah that they should do the same, that they should go back home to their families in Moab because he's saying, listen, there's nothing that I can offer you, right? She has nothing left to, to provide for these daughters. She has no more sons for them to marry. Uh, she has no wealth or, or security. She has no future to give them. She's saying, listen, essentially my life is over, so I want to do whatever I can to help save yours. I think the best thing for you to do is to go back to Moab and to go back to your families. And you see, this is where we get our opportunity to see the first example of what Hesed love looks like. Because you see, one of her daughter-in-laws, Orpah, decides, she listens to what Naomi has to say, and she decides, listen, I'm going to go ahead and go back. As hard as that decision was and as, as much as she wanted to stay, she thought about it and she said, you know what, there might be some truth to what you're saying. It might be best for me to go back to my family back in Moab. And so she goes. But you see, Hasid love is found in the response that Ruth gives to Naomi's request. Listen to what she says. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. You know, we, we hear that portion of scripture, and, and usually we hear it as sort of this poetic statement. Right? And so we do all sorts of things with it. We, we do recite it at weddings, and, and we make trinkets out of it, mugs and T-shirts. We'll, we'll uh, kind of uh, feature it as a, a poetic thing that came out of Ruth's mouth. But you see, if, if we were to take a moment, just kind of consider what Ruth is actually saying here, we would see that what she is actually doing is giving herself a death sentence. You see, Ruth and Naomi... Have, been, have spent the last 10 years or so of their lives together, right? And so they really have developed a, a real relationship with one another. Ruth really does see Naomi as, uh, as her mom, and Naomi really does see Ruth as one of her daughters. But you see, in this moment, right, in this time of need, there would be so much at stake if Ruth decides to go to Bethlehem with Naomi. I mean, at this point, everything about her life would be put on the table, right? Her lifelong relationships, the people that she knows and, and know her and she's grown to love. Her family, the people who have raised her and supported her all throughout her life. She's giving away essentially any future of being able to find a husband or to have children. She's giving away the comfort and the familiarity of, of being in your own hometown where people know and accept you, right? Pretty much her entire future is being put on the table by this decision that she's making. You see, one scholar says it well. This is what he says. He says, Ruth took on the uncertain future of clinging to a bitter widow in a land where she knew no one, enjoyed few legal rights, and given the traditional Moabite-Israelite rivalry faced possible ethnic prejudice, she gave up marriage to a man to devote herself to an old woman in a world dominated by men. Now, that's not nearly as poetic, right? Could you imagine reciting that at your wedding, right? What that would look like? But you see, that's what Ruth was doing. 
And when we, when we consider Ruth's response, it helps us to see the nature of Hesed love. Ruth is saying, listen, do you want to know what real love looks like in a, in a messy and an imperfect world? I think the first thing that Ruth is teaching us here is this, that Hesed love means daily dying to yourself. Hesed love means daily dying to yourself. It means you willingly die so that someone else can live. That you willingly die so that someone else can live. You know, for you and I, it may not be as dramatic as what Ruth has just done, but I think it does happen, and it can happen in a million other ways, in, in small ways and big ways, every single day of our life. It could mean that maybe you give up that career or that promotion that you've been working so hard on so that now you can spend and commit yourself to your family that really desperately needs you, that you die to yourself. Or it means maybe that you could reach out to your friend who that friend has done nothing but bring heartache and pain into your life and reach out to them, forgiving them. That maybe you die like that. It means maybe that you could maybe take the last nickel out of your savings account, right? And you give it to somebody who is struggling to be able to pay their bills so that they could keep the lights on even if you have nothing in your savings. Maybe you die like that. Or maybe it means that you could find time to tutor at North Hills, even though you know th that, that your plate is absolutely full. That it might mean that you got to take some things off of your plate so that you can start doing this so that someone else could be benefited by your work. Or it could mean that maybe you invite your neighbor over. The two of you have nothing in common, and every, every conversation seems to be awkward every time you have it, and yet you know that this person really is in need of friendship. They're alone. So maybe you die in that way. You see, hesed love means dying, being willing to die so that someone else can live. And the reason why you do that is because you consider someone else as being greater than yourself. And the reason why you do that is because you see their needs as being more important than your own needs, right? You see, Hesed love will require you to die. It will require you to die. A thousand deaths you will die. Almost every single day you're, you will die. And here's the thing, right? No matter how big or how small your last death was, there will always be another opportunity for you to die. Because as long as we live in a messy and an imperfect world, there will always be a need for death. And that was even true for Ruth. Take a look, right? This is chapter 1, verses 19 to 21. It says, So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has brought me back empty. Consider that for a moment, okay? Ruth packs up her stuff, right? Makes the biggest sacrifice of her life. They travel some 50 miles between Moab and Bethlehem on feet, right? It, to go into a land where uh, Ruth will absolutely be an outsider. 
And when they enter into Bethlehem, right, Naomi sees some of her old friends, and listen to what she says. She says, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Could you imagine for a moment what it would look like to be Ruth at that moment? Right? Ruth just put herself on death row. There probably isn't one more example of a sacrifice that she could make than all the things that she has done already. And now she's standing side by side with her mother-in-law, Naomi, with with callous feet and in enemy territory, with, with people glancing at her, wondering what she's doing in our neck of the woods. And some of the first words that comes out of Naomi's mouth is, I came back empty. I have nothing. What would it look like for you to be Ruth in that moment? I imagine you're thinking, are you kidding me? Right? What, what am I, like chopped liver? Right? What do you mean you came back empty? Right? Do you remember all the things that I gave up to come and to be with you? Uh, do you not see me standing here right next to you? How is it that you're calling yourself empty? But you see, what we see here is not Ruth getting even, or not Ruth demanding that she be appreciated. Rather, Ruth decides to die. She did it before, and she knows she'll have to do it again, because that's what Hesed love is all about. It's a daily death, right? In big ways and in small ways. It's going to be death to pride, and death to comfort, and death to security, and death to preferences, because what? Because you see someone else as being greater than yourself. And you see their needs as being more important than your own needs. And so you're willing to die. And so the first thing we need to know about Hesed love is that Hesed love means dying daily to yourself. Let's keep on reading. It says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let's, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went out and gleaned in the field and after the, after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the, servant, and the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So what's going on here? Well, Naomi and Ruth have moved back to Bethlehem, right? So they have to sort of get settled in this new place that they're going to start their lives in. And so there's all sorts of things that they need to figure out at this point, right? Where are they going to live? And and how are they going to provide for themselves? And how are they going to stay safe as as two single women in in this town, right? All sorts of things. And so Ruth doesn't waste any time. She decides that she's going to go out and do what it takes to provide for for this couple, for this family, right? So what she does is she sets out to go into a field where she can gather some food for the both of them. And you see, God has sort of always had a special heart for widows, right? For women just like Ruth and Naomi. And so years ago, God made a law 
instructing the Israelites on how they should deal with their fields. He said this. He said, listen, if you own a field, when it's time to harvest that field, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to glean right up until the perimeter of that field, but leave the perimeter untouched, right? They're supposed to sort of glean right up onto the edge, but leave a portion of that field untouched. Why? For people like widows who are in need of food. He's saying, God is saying, listen, you have a lot. Set apart a portion for those who are in need, right? It was sort of like an ancient form of, of food stamps, right? It was seeing God, uh, God seeing people's need and providing for those people through this field. Well, I think Ruth must have known all about this, right? Because she goes out and she finds a, a field and she goes right up to the person who's in charge. And she starts telling them her story and, and, and she tells them that she's here with Naomi. And so she asks for permission to begin gleaning and gathering. And so they're okay with it. They give her permission to do that, right? And so she gets to work. Now, it's important for us to remember that or to see that this work of reaping by hand is actually really difficult work. Right? Traditionally, it's, it's kind of divided up by genders. It takes a team of people to do it. And so what you'll see usually is the men sort of crouch down onto the floor, and, and they'll be there with this stone sickle, and they'll start uh, chipping away at the wheat. And so when they chip away, the, the wheat falls to the ground, and what you'll see is the women come from behind and pick up that wheat, right? and they start putting it into bundles and tying it up. It was sort of a, a two-man job. One person goes ahead, cuts it down. The other person gathers and bundles it together. But what we see here in Ruth's case is that she is doing both, right? She's the one that's cutting. She's the one that's gathering and tying together. And she's out in the, in the hot sun, crouching and, and collecting and, and tying bundles together. And she's been doing this since the break of dawn. Now, a quick tangent, right? in case you, must, you, may, you may have missed this. You see, right here, Ruth demonstrates one more time this idea of dying to yourself, right? I mean, after that hurtful comment of being empty that she just uh, communicated to her friends after Naomi says this, uh, Ruth could have responded by being a little bit passive-aggressive, right? right? She could have been like, empty, right? Well, it, let's see, it's your stomach that's going to be empty for the next couple of days, right? Because I'm not going to go out and get food. I don't know who is, but I'm not. She could have definitely responded just passive-aggressively. But you see, there's none of that, right? Even after a hurtful comment like that, she goes out, and she works hard, and she labors for Naomi's good, right? She does this work unthanked and all by herself. You notice Naomi's not by her side. She's doing this on her own. But you see, it's sort of Ruth's M.O., Right? She knows that she needs to continually die daily in small ways and in big ways. Hesed love means dying daily. But you see, this is where sort of the, the story begins to take a shift, right? Because in a moment, what we'll see here is Ruth goes from being the dispenser of Hesed love to now being the recipient of it. Because as we just read, it turns out, right? that Naomi's husband actually does have some relatives left over in Bethlehem, specifically a man named Boaz. And, and Boaz is a, a wealthy man, a man who owns a field, who, who has a lot of stuff in this town. Well, it just so happens, as the text says, that Ruth comes to this very field, and he's, she starts gleaning from this field. 
Now, in a couple of weeks, we'll probably talk about providence. And we'll talk about what the biblical understanding, understanding of, of what chance versus providence looks like. But what the text says is that she happens to stumble upon this field and to glean from the very field that is actually, in some sense, her relatives. And she begins to glean and gather from Boaz's field. Well, he says that Boaz comes to that field that day. Maybe he was out, and maybe he's coming in later on in the day. And, and he's looking out into that field, and he notices out in that field an unfamiliar face, right? Someone that typically doesn't, uh, isn't there, doesn't work for him. And so he begins asking questions, trying to figure out who is this woman and what's, what's going on here. And so the manager comes up to Boaz and starts explaining what's going on. He starts telling him the story of Ruth and, and who she is and that she's with Naomi and why she's here. She's trying to glean food from the field. And it seems like Boaz's heart is almost immediately uh, filled with a concern and a desire to, to try to help Ruth in this situation. Listen to Boaz's response. Because in it, I think you'll find the second example of what Hesed love looks like. It says this, Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. You see, Boaz's response here teaches us one more thing about hesed love. Hesed love means loving unevenly. Hesed love means loving unevenly. What do I mean by that? You see, Ruth and Boaz couldn't be more different from one another, right? They couldn't be on more opposite ends of the spectrum when it comes to who they are and what their lives look like. Right? Ruth was a, a poor widow. She was a, a despised foreigner who, at this moment in her life, is, is almost powerless, has very little power uh, that she can exert uh, in any portion of her life. She has no power. But Boaz, Boaz was a, a wealthy man. Right? He, he was an Israelite landowner. He was powerful in so many different ways. You see, what I'm trying to say here is that in this relationship right here between Boaz and Ruth, there is no opportunity for reciprocity, right? There is no opportunity because there was nothing that Ruth had that Boaz was in need of, and there was nothing that Boaz could offer that Ruth wouldn't need, right? There was no reciprocity here. This was going to be an uneven relationship right from the start. Now, I need you to hear this, right? It's important to notice here that what we're seeing right here in this passage is not Boaz trying to kick game to Ruth, right? Uh, he's not trying to hit on Ruth. He's not trying to romance her or to show off uh, what he has or, 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 or the things that he owns or the power that he has. That's not what we're seeing here. And we know that because later on in chapter 3, we see Boaz treating Ruth with the utmost honor, Right? in what could have been a real intimate moment, could, what could have been potentially even a sexual moment there between them, he instead, instead of uh, taking advantage of her, he responds by treating her with honor and with dignity. Or the fact that even later on, when Ruth expresses her desire for Boaz, right, he doesn't immediately give in. 
Instead, he wants to make sure that he's maintaining integrity in this relationship and that he's uh, fulfilling this relationship based on the rules that are established. And so we see a couple of opportunities where he's not trying to take advantage of this woman, not trying to have his way with her, not trying to simply impress her and woo her, but he really does see a need. And you see, this really helps us to see that this is a demonstration of Hesed love. You see, Boaz decides to show Ruth love expecting nothing in return. Or maybe I should say, Boaz decides to show Ruth love while knowing that there isn't anything that she actually could do in return. And here's the amazing part, right? He still decides that he's going to break the bank for her. Let's look at how. The first thing he says is, he says to Ruth, listen, my daughter, do not go and glean in another field or leave this one. Do not go and glean in another field or leave this one. What does that mean? You see, when you're a widow and you're trying to go to these perimeters of these fields to try to find food, you would often have to go from field to field trying to find the food that you need. Because sometimes you go to a field and, and maybe somebody's already been there, right? And so there's another field that you need to go and try to find. Or maybe sometimes you go to a field and there's a lot of people there already and you know that you can't really fit in and get what you need from that field. And so you travel from field to field trying to find what you need. But what does Boaz say? He says, listen, you don't need to go to any other field. You stay right here. You will get what you need. In fact, he says, but keep close to my young women. What does that mean? He says, listen, when you come to this field, you don't come to this field as a widow, right? You come to this field as one of my maidservants. What does that mean? He's saying, listen, when you come to this field, you don't have to just stay outside in the perimeter. Come inside. Glean as everyone else is gleaning, right? You're not just limited to what you find outside in the perimeter. You have every opportunity to get what you need at this moment. He's even elevating her role, right? He's saying, when you come here, I'm not even going to see you as a widow. I'm going to see you as a maidservant, right? I'm going to elevate your role, give you even an opportunity to, to function in a particular way that otherwise you wouldn't be able to. And then he says this. He says, let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. What does he mean by that? What did we say before? We said, Ruth, what does she need to do? She needs to kind of function in both roles, right? She would need to play the role of the man and the woman. But right now he's saying, let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. So he's saying, listen, go and be like the other women, right? Let the men cut for you and you gather and you gather for yourself what it is that you need. He is lightening her load. And then he also says, have I not charged the young men not to touch you? Not only does he provide her with everything that she needs, he's also providing her with safety, right? She's a widow. She's single in this field with a bunch of men. And he's saying, I've told them already, you can't touch her. You leave her alone. He's providing her with safety. And then he says, when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn he has provided for her in every way. He's saying, when you're out there and you're working in the sun and when you get thirsty, take a moment to breathe. Drink a glass of water. You're not just a, a servant. You're, you get an opportunity to, to kind of find rest and comfort for yourself as you do this work. In fact, a few verses later, it says that Ruth takes home an FF of barley. An FF of barley. What that means is essentially that she took home a half month worth of barley with her when she left. She worked a day, but went home with 15 days worth of barley. You see, Boaz has been generous to her in every single way. Boaz breaks the bank for her, 
and expects nothing in return. You know why? Because hesed is an uneven love. And you know what? We might be here this morning, and, and, and maybe we don't have power or we don't have wealth, but I think that we have tons of opportunities to demonstrate hesed love in this way. Maybe it is that you need to have this opportunity to forgive someone who just seems to continually treat you wrong. You give them what they don't deserve, and you don't expect anything in return. You're not asking for anything. You forgive because you need to forgive. You want to forgive, irrespective of what they say in response. Or maybe you choose to love someone or, or befriend someone who is just this needy person, right? who is just constantly in need. Maybe it's this thing or, or it's that thing. They, they need help with something in particular. They always need an ear. Whatever it might be, you know there's probably going to be very little that I'm going to be able to offer this person, and yet I'm going to love them, irrespective of how needy that they are. Or maybe it's you being committed to a spouse that wants nothing to do with you. Right? I mean, it could be possible that you're literally sitting here right now, sitting next to someone that, that is your spouse, and yet you feel miles apart from each other, right? You really have no love towards one another. They have, they have uh, kind of written you off. And maybe this is an opportunity for you to show someone has to love, to give to them, to love them in an uneven way, even if they never respond back to you with anything. You see, hesed love is an uneven love. In this world that we live in, we're told that relationships need to be 50-50, right? It's all about what you give and take. You kind of have to meet each other halfway. But you see, hesed love means that sometimes what you receive is nowhere close to what you actually give. That's the way hesed love is. But you decide that you're going to love that way anyway. You see, hesed love means that you're going to die to yourself daily. And hesed love means that you're going to love other people unevenly. So some of my real question is, why is hesed love the only real way to love in this messy and imperfect world? It's because it was the way that you were loved, even though you were messy and imperfect. Right? Listen to 1 John chapter 4. The Apostle John says this. He said, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Did you catch that? You see, God sent his son so that through his death, we might be able to live. And what I want you to hear is that Jesus died a thousand deaths even before he got to the cross. Right? Jesus died a thousand deaths even before he even got to the cross. He, he died to comfort, right? He went from dwelling in the heavenly places to now coming on earth and being said that he has no place to even lie his head. He died to relationships, right? He had the, the fullness of relationship with the Trinity, the triune God. The, the Father and the Son and the Spirit were living in fullness of relationship, loving one another, honoring one another, respecting one another. And yet, he comes onto earth, and his own family, his own friends reject him. 
He died to position, right? He went from being the king of the entire universe to a humble servant, he called himself. He washed the feet of those who followed him. He, he died to wealth, right? Jesus owns everything. Everything belongs to him. And yet he came onto earth and we find him lying naked on a cross. You see, Jesus died so that we can live. And you see, he died a thousand deaths before he actually died on the cross. Because that's what Hesed love looks like. It means daily dying to yourself. And we have seen that in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But you see, as John says here, God's love is actually also an uneven love. What he says, he says, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. You, you see, we didn't want anything to do with God. Consider that for a moment. We didn't want anything to do with God, and yet the God of the universe came running after us. What does that look like? Again, if you're sitting here and, and there are relationships in your life, maybe it is a spouse, maybe it is a, a good friend of yours, where they want nothing to do with you, what would it look like for you to chase, run after them, to show them has to love, to say, it doesn't matter what you feel about me right now. I'm going to, to cover you in love. That's what God did for us. And when he gave, there was nothing even about it, right? We gave him our sin. We gave him the wrath that we deserved. We gave him ultimately death. And he responds by giving us righteousness and mercy and, and forgiveness and grace and reconciled relationship with the Father. You see, Jesus died so that we can live. And when Jesus loved, he loved unevenly. Some of our road, why do we love with Hesed love? Listen to John again. He says this. He says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. So why do we love with Hesed love? Because it's the way that God loved us. And hear this. When we love one another, we make the invisible God visible to people. Right? We make sometimes the difficult-to-feel love of God tangible for people. There might be people in your life right now that tangibly need to feel the love of God. And what is John telling us? You who have tasted of this love of God. Here is an opportunity for you to make that love tangible for someone who is in need of that love. By dying. By giving unevenly. So some of my road, I want to ask you a question. Who do you need to love in this way this morning? Maybe you're sitting right next to that person this morning. Maybe there's someone that comes to mind immediately as you think about this. Who do you need to love in that way this morning? Because it will require you to die a thousand deaths every single day. And it will require you to give and maybe never receive anything in return. But the truth is this. You and I know all about that kind of love. Let's pray. God, Father, it is, it is true. How, how can we put into words what your love looks like? What language could we possibly translate this into? 
where we could encompass all that you have done for us, all that you are, the extent of the love that you have for us. What word could we possibly use to explain any of that? And yet, we're grateful that it is true that you really have loved us, that we have seen your love for us through your Son, and that by your grace, we have been able to experience that love even through the people that sit around us as well. They have made visible the invisible God through the way that they love. And so, Father, I pray that even as we sit here this morning, would you bring to mind even move us to action so that we would actually love those who are undeserving. That we would actually love in a way that is uneven, not expecting anything in return. And that the reason why we do any of that is because it has been done to us. That Jesus, you died a thousand deaths, and then you ultimately died so that we can live. And Jesus, you gave unevenly to us. We have not offered you anything, and yet you give and you give again. And so I pray, Lord, would you bring to mind this morning who it is that we can love in this way? Would you move us so that we would actually love in the way that you have loved us? Please help us. Please help us so that we don't walk away simply hearing your word and not doing anything and so deceiving ourselves, but rather move us to action. Help us to hesed love this day, even on this day. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.